to be with you today. So good to be ministered to by all those ministers of music. For you bringing the fullness of your lives to this place and to lay them before God as a community is a gift. And I don't say often enough, thank you so much for being a part of this time of worship together. As they make their way out into the congregation, I do want to thank Marty and Melissa Childers for being present with us today. We're so grateful um, for the time that you spent with our adult uh, Sunday school classes, both online and in person this morning. Thanks to all of you all for bringing an abundance of food. Um, As you continue to digest the information that Marty brought to us, hopefully it will continue the dialogue about what it is that we will be about as we discern by the power of the Holy Spirit where the accents fall in our life together. Not just to keep ourselves comfortable, but above all, to continue to be outward-facing, persistently reaching out to a world that needs to know the good news of Jesus Christ. Good news. I'm going to begin, actually, before our scripture reading today, with a bit of bad news, or at least difficult news, and it is the concluding verses of the prophet Malachi. There, at the very concluding words of the Old Testament, the last prophetic word that the people receive from God And God had sent many prophets to deliver words of correction, challenge, hope, comfort, support, to speak God's word to God's people at points in time along the way. And the people didn't always receive it well. In fact, Jesus more than once lamented how Jerusalem there, the symbolic center of the people's life, that they would wound and kill their prophets because they don't want to hear that directly from God. But Malachi concludes his prophetic word with these words. Uh, Beginning in verse 4 of chapter 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. It is the cliffhanger of cliffhangers, scripturally speaking, because this is not a a way of saying the end, but instead to be continued. And how long do the people have to wait for that particular story to pick back up. About 450 years of, scripturally speaking, silence between the prophetic words of the Old Testament and Jesus' arrival on the scene in the New. And what the people had to hang on to was this sign, this signal that Malachi gave them that Elijah would announce the return of God in the presence of the Messiah. And so those who were devoted and worried and watching, waiting for that day when God would finally arrive and get out of the world what God wants, they waited a long, long time. 
And today we pick up in Mark's gospel, reading just a couple of verses that are, in a sense, the to be continued, the new chapter. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the scriptures today. As we gather around this time, I have to continue on that bad news note, at least for a little while. Jesus, of course, calls us to believe the good news, and I promise you we will get there. But before we do, we have to understand what is happening right at the beginning of this chapter. Mark's gospel has no time to set a, a, an extravagant buffet of words or details. As I've told you before, the word and appears in the first chapter of Mark's gospel 13 times. It's as if he's just so breathless to get through the story. And this, and that, and, 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 and. There's a steady pulse. And so we don't have a lot of the backstory that we find in some of the other gospels about what's happening with John the Baptist. But I think we need to start our understanding of this word repent today with John's ministry. John is sort of the first prophet in the old mold that we hear about, who comes on the scene 450 or so years after Malachi concluded his words. And like a good prophet, he speaks truth to power. And so he tells Herod, who's the ruling despot of the day there in the area, it is not right for you to be sleeping with your brother's wife. And if you ever thought that modern politicians, the ones who thought up that, you know, kind of publicly facing bad behavior was okay, Herod tells us otherwise. John is arrested, of course, for speaking out and pushing back against power. He's thrown in prison as a way to keep him quiet. And that is very bad news. But that bad news becomes a trigger for what becomes the greatest, most world-changing news ever. Because John's mission had not been the accomplishment of what God was setting out to do. It was to be the announcement. When you think about, uh, for instance, like the State of the Union Address, and everyone's gathered there in Congress, the, the House of Representatives, the Speaker of the House, is the one who traditionally would stand up and say something like, members of Congress, the President of the United States. But of course, we know that those words are only part of the story. In order for the president to arrive in that building, they're scouting out in secret service all of the ways that that route could be attacked or subverted or somehow diverted. They've created plan A, plan B, plan C. In order for everybody to get into the space, they've got to go through metal detectors and they need to be checked and vetted. And an invitation is issued that in order for the speaker simply to say, members of Congress, the president of the United States, everyone has to go to work. The announcement is just words until people actually respond and make the space that lines up with what the announcement proclaimed. And this was true in ancient times too, so that if a dignitary or a monarch 
was on the way, maybe traveling through a, a, a town or traveling to a town, there would be someone who goes ahead and announces the king is coming, the queen is coming, the ambassador is coming. And the reason they do that is not just to spread excitement and let enthusiasm go viral like it would maybe on social media or something. This was because the town needed to get its ducks all lined up just right. The front porches needed to be swept off. All of the clutter that had accumulated in alleyways needed to be cleaned out. It would be profoundly disrespectful and dishonorable to welcome that esteemed and distinguished leader into their town if everything wasn't already lined up to receive her or him. And so the forerunner again makes the announcement, but it requires all the people to hear it, receive it, respond to it, and participate and ready themselves and ready their little corner of the world for the arrival. So John is that go-ahead, here declaring that the Messiah is coming. And John is getting everybody ready for that anointed one who's on the way. And John's announcements are now over. It's time for the main event, Mark tells us. And Jesus isn't intimidated by the culture of violence that's already been on display in John's life. The culture of control, the culture even of death that's so well known in that world and in ours is not going to silence Jesus. His cousin has just been arrested in order to silence him and shut him up. But Jesus boldly and visibly steps into that public ministry and he brings the good news, this announcement that's going to change the world. That's how Mark says it. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God. We know that gospel means good news. And it's good news from God. It's good news about God. And what is that good news? If I opened up the microphone, I wonder how many different sort of answers we might say about that. Because as good news has landed in our hearts, in our lives, of course, it's taken a unique shape. But at its heart, the kernel, the seed, as Mackenzie offered in the prayer today, that was planted for us, is that there is a better world. In fact, there is a new world, a world in which God's goodness and God's mercy rules over all and reigns over all people and all things. You've been waiting for it. You've been longing for it. You've been praying for it. It's here. It's here. Luke tells us that in Jesus' very first sermon, he reads from the prophet Isaiah. And as he reads those words, they describe his mission. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Anointed me to bring release to the prisoners. Anointed me to bring sight to the blind and liberation to the oppressed, to announce that right now is the year of the Lord's favor. And then he sits down. And I've often wondered, because Scripture doesn't always give us a, a sense of how much time passed on the clock, how long Jesus just sat there and let people fidget and sit with that reading. They knew the words. 
but he chose to read them today as if he had some special insight. When, when might that be? When might it happen? Do you know something? Are you planning something? Have you met someone? When is it going to happen, Jesus? When is all of this going to take place? He may have known and anticipated all of those longings, or maybe he waited and just let them worry and wonder on top of him for a while. But his answer is unambiguous. Now. Everything's been fulfilled in your hearing, are his words. It's that moment that you hope for somewhere in the future that you're longing for, that you're hopeful for, that you're wishing for, that you're learning about, that, that all of a sudden, in the blink of an eye, comes into the present. That happens to us every once in a while in our lives, sometimes in good ways and bad ways. I've often said that, you know, welcoming children into our household was one of those experiences. Janelle read all the books. And I married her because she's a list maker and she wrote all the lists out. And I waited till the last minute, but eventually assembled, you know, the nursery furniture that we were ready and we were watching and we were waiting and we read all the books and we had plan A, plan B, plan C for what we were going to do to be the perfect parent to raise the perfect uncontaminated child. And we were in tears the first night realizing how little we knew and how little we were prepared for what would actually be called out of us. It can happen in the blink of an eye. When Jesus is announcing now to the people, the people who live in a wrecked and weary world, that God's good news of a new world is here. People start to hear words out of him and around him that they haven't heard before. They really are part of the new world. Neither do I condemn you, he told people. Well, your faith has made you well. It saved you, he's told people. Or your sins are forgiven. Or Lazarus, come forth. He is not here. He is risen. These are not words of the world as it was. It's not even words of the world as we think it is. It's a new world in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is already inviting us as he invited them to join him in the world according to God. And ever since Jesus made that announcement, people who live for Jesus they bring the same good news to people around them in one way or another. And I think sometimes as Christians, we get a little confused about what the good news is. Sometimes we, we bring a lot of news. Um, and, and very often sort of caricaturing is it sounds like people want me even to say, hey, I've got good news for you. You're a sinner. And I want to remind you that that's bad news. And we do spend a lot of time especially in this season, as we anticipate Easter to examine ourselves and take kind of an unbiased, more objective look at the world and see how broken down our rebellion and our sin and our distance from God has made us from God, from one another, and from all that is good and beautiful. But that's not the good news. This 
is the good news. There is liberation for those who are oppressed. There is release for those who are imprisoned. There is sight for those who are blind. Jesus is calling us to be able to say with him, we are here to help. We're going to enter into this very bad news world and bring God's good news to you now in what we say and what we do. That's good news. And that it happens at all is amazing. And that we've been entrusted with that kind of message and that kind of work is astounding. And on the heels of proclaiming that good news, Jesus then calls those who would follow, repent and believe. And repent is our word of the day. You know, we're just sort of walking through these support. Repent and believe. And that's another word that has a lot of interpretation, a lot of commentary, and a lot of integration into our own lives. When we talk about repentance, it means a sort of variation of things because we have had to practice repentance in a lot of different ways. But as you have probably already learned, if you've been in church at all, that repent and repentance is the, the English translation that we render to the Greek word metanoia, uh, which means to, to change your noose, actually, to, N-O-U-S, to change your mind. And the mind in the New Testament context doesn't mean that little kind of pink meat there in your skull. It's not talking about that. In the same way that um, uh, the psalm that we read this morning from Psalm 19, verse 14 says, and probably more familiar translation to you, something like, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my, what? My heart. Your heart doesn't speak. It doesn't meditate. We know clinically it beats and we know how it works. And, and sometimes when it fails us, it is, um, it, it is uh, disconcerting and fearful and frightening. But in the Old Testament heart and in the New Testament mind, what they're referring to is that sense of where our judgment and our ethics and our morals and our decision-making and our character all reside. It's the seat of who we really are. And everything we do and everything we say flows out of that place. Call it what you will. And Jesus says, that's got to change. That's what has to change. It has to turn around. It has to be, in some way, reoriented to this new awareness. Stop pretending that God has not come on the scene in me. Stop pretending as if your life is all about you. If you anchor yourself now in the awareness that God's new kingdom, that God's reign starts now, that it's a present reality, everything changes. A friend of mine who travels a lot was telling me recently was on a flight and um, was stunned by the courtesy, the care, and the conscientious attention uh, that he got from the entire flight crew. It was, it was above average. It wasn't a, a bad airline, but it was one of those people that travels enough to know good days and bad days. And this was chef's kiss, sort of superlative effort uh, from the beginning to the end. And he noted it when he was, when he was uh, deplaning. He said, thank you. This is a wonderful flight. Thank you so much for um, a wonderful experience. Everyone was really on their game. What happened? And, and the, the flight attendant said, well, you can thank the woman over there in 12B because she's the one who grades us as a team. And 
and and she was on her flight today. Think about that for a minute. Let it settle in. Jesus is announcing something similar. God, God's on board now. As we make this trip around the sun, you know, how are you going to be feeding, uh, uh, taking care of, and treating the fellow passengers on this trip that we're on? You know, Brian began with a prayer uh, from the ancient Christian archives. I think I can beat him. Uh, this one is from 130, we believe. 130, you know, just after Jesus was born, early second century. There's a letter that we have in the Christian archive called the, the letter to or the epistle to um, Diognetus. And it is uh, a guy named Matthew who's writing to Diognetus and trying to explain what Christianity is about there in the context of the Roman Empire. And the challenge that he's trying to address is that you can't look at a person and know whether they're a Christian in the same way you could tell a lot of other people apart. Because Christians, he says, don't, you know, they don't have an ethnicity. There are all sorts of ethnic groups that are Christians. Uh, Christians don't have their own country. There are Christians who live, he says, in a lot of countries. Christians don't have their own language. But instead, wherever they are, they speak the language that is native to that area. This is how you tell them apart. He says, Christians have children, but they don't expect them to die. The other thing that they have is a common table, and they'll share their food with you, but they won't share their wives. Ever since then, Christians have understood that if they're going to be a part of belonging to God's new world, to respond to that good news that Jesus has announced, that Jesus has inaugurated, then they have to repent. They have to change their minds and their hearts and turn around and put their body in motion in that new conviction, their choices. They're going to put their lives on the line for that change of heart, that change of mind, that believing the gospel. And it's an incredible challenge. It is one that we encounter on this way to the cross and to Easter's victory because in many ways, when we think about repenting, it's much easier to look outside of ourselves at a world that says they got to get their act together. They got to turn their lives around. But what about us? Will we be brave enough these days to look at ourselves because, you know, when we talk about repentance, I'm resistant sometimes. And I know why. Maybe I'm a little too self-absorbed. What I really know is that it is hard to do. To repent is hard. To change is hard. To pray and confess and to have to start over every day, really, every day. Staying the way you are has some reward to it. At least you know what to expect. But this belief that the world is going to change and is already changing, that we need to make a course correction in order to stay in step with what God is doing in the world. Well, there's a mountain of evidence when I look at the world that says, I'm not sure that's ever going to happen. 
And I've heard more than one person cast their doubt on that same forecast. But deep down, I know when I look out in the world and think so pessimistically that it will ever change, it's because I have conditioned myself to see those things because I look in the mirror every single day. And I haven't changed. Not in the ways I've wanted to. Not on anyone's timeline. And maybe even you, know, you come to church and you look to your left, you look to your right, you look across the street, you look and say, are we at all in step with what God is doing now? And so we may feel discouraged. We may feel like there's nothing to lean into in this word. But I'm here to tell you differently. Look back over the great sweep of what God has done through the church, the Church Universal and Yates Baptist Church, and believe that there were some people crazy enough to believe that repenting and believing the good news would make a difference. You know, one of the... I'm so frustrated. Can I just go on this microphone? The little clip that attaches this to my collar broke, uh, so it kept slipping back. You know, one of the things I'm really passionate about, and you may have noticed on the church calendar, uh, is that we have something of an open door policy for 12-step recovery groups. And one of the reasons that that's just me, myself and I, I'm a big believer, um, not necessarily in the clinical outcomes that always come uh, in terms of recovery from those who participate in 12-step groups, but those are healing and hopeful communities that bring people across the threshold of our church who never would dare to encounter us otherwise and find here a safe space to unburden themselves and find the necessary support and discipline and structures to begin making real changes. Would it surprise you to know that AA was founded by two men who met each other in a Christian ministry that was oriented to alcoholism and its in recovery from it? And they took what they had learned from that group time and they laid it on top of what they knew out of Scripture and out of their own church lives for so long about what a penitent person does. And they created the 12 steps. Deep down at the heart of it was good news for someone incarcerated, held captive by their addiction. It may surprise you to know, uh, as we continue to get to know the hospice, for instance. Hospice, the founder of the modern hospice movement is a, a woman named Cicely Saunders. And she, with Christian compassion, looked at the plight of those who would die alone. They knew their end was near. They knew it would be painful. And in very... Uh, very often in healthcare systems at that time, when there was nothing more to do, there was nothing more to do. And she created something to do that was built out of her own formation as a Christian to embody for those who are dying and those who are keeping vigil with them, Jesus promised, I will never leave you. And to companion them even to their last breath. Hospice was a Christian movement before it became a healthcare plan. Because people were crazy enough to think the good news can infiltrate all corners of this world 
not just the sacred corners of a church. All birthed in the womb of this thing called the gospel. When God has God's way, nothing is impossible. And Jesus announces this. And he doesn't stand off somewhere in the distance from the top of a mountain or off in the wilderness. If you're interested to go, well, you can take a day off of work and head out to hear him. He's the leader of a movement that's going to change the world. And he doesn't wait for you as he didn't wait for them to come out and find him. He comes to you and he finds you. And if he has to interrupt you in your workplaces, he will. He walked along the Sea of Galilee. We find out right after this reading. And he found those who were fishing for a living. He says, follow me and I'll make you fish for people. And he recruits them right out of that workplace. He says, I want you to be a part of what God is doing now. It's great news. It's a wrecked and weary world out there. And I'm bringing this new world in. It's God's kingdom, God's reign. Are you in? Are you with me? What would you say to him? What will you say to him today? And what needs to change in your mind or your heart or your life for that yes to mean anything? Take heart. Take heart if you start to put up the resistance that we inevitably do when Jesus comes knocking too close to the door of our hearts and our lives. When Jesus meets these who fish for a living, these guys who spend most of the time just hauling out drag nets of fish all day long. He says, I'm going to make you fish for people. He doesn't say, I will make you tenders of vines. He doesn't say, I will make you cultivators of wheat. He doesn't say, I will make you herders of sheep. What you already have, what you've already lived, what you've already experienced, what you've already overcome, what you've already suffered, all of the skills and all of the experiences, all of the learning Maybe some of your attitudes, a lot of your abilities, well, they can be put to work in this new world, according to God, if we follow Jesus and let him show us how. And so as we conclude this time of reflection today, and as you prepare in your own life between Sundays, as you pray and as you examine yourself, look at your life through the lens of the good news, bad news. And maybe the bad news is just so at the forefront of your mind and of your heart, you can't perceive the good news, but I assure you that it is there. It is already there because Jesus has said it. And if you look at your participation in life with Jesus, only in terms of your limitations, that you don't have enough money, or you don't have a lot of talent, or you don't have your act together, you don't have a lot of energy, you don't have a lot of health, on the authority of the scriptures now, I can tell you that every single one of you who follows Christ will be shown by that same Jesus how to be a good news person in a bad news world. All it requires is one mind, one heart, turned and devoted again to him. Repent and believe the gospel. Amen.